The following message is presented by First Baptist Church in Manny, Louisiana. For more information, go to the website www.fbcmany.org. Now the message. Several years ago, I was studying in the book of Revelation, and I found this book written by Stephen Lawson. The title is Final Call, and the subtitle, It's Time for the Church to Wake Up and Answer the Final Call. I don't know Stephen Lawson. Maybe you do. He was pastor for over 15 years in Little Rock, Arkansas. And what he writes in the preface, I want to read because I think it has an application for our study in the seven churches. Please don't misunderstand when I read this. This is not a political kind of statement. But it is a call for the church to be the church that Jesus has called us to be. So listen as I read two pages from the book called Final Call. Something has gone wrong in America desperately wrong. By outward appearances, America is healthy, prosperous, educated, thriving. Our economy is recovering. Our technology is advancing. Our exports are increasing. I should have told you this book was written in 1994. Okay? What he says then is still true today in a lot of ways, but listen to the rest. But inwardly, the soul of America is dying. Our country is suffering from acute heart failure. Our pulse for God is weakening. Our arteries of religious faith are blocked. We need emergency open-heart surgery, a spiritual bypass. Better yet, we need a new heart. I see America through the eyes of Little Rock, Arkansas... And recently, what I have seen greatly disturbs me. During the last 13 years of my pastorate here, I've witnessed firsthand the incredible phenomenon, the rise of President Bill Clinton. I have seen up close and personal making a president. Mr. Clinton ran for the White House on a platform of change, a change in national ideology, a change in political agenda, a change in social direction, and unfortunately, at its very core, a change in the moral foundation of America. True to his campaign promises, President Clinton has ushered in a sweeping change. On January 23, 1993, the third day of his presidency, Clinton issued five executive orders that signal the changes to come. He initiated the lifting of the ban of homosexuals in the military. He ordered the ban on fetal tissue to be lifted. He ordered the ban on abortion counseling in federally funded clinics to be lifted. He introduced medication, RU486, to begin. That is the abortion pill. He ordered funds for abortion in military hospitals overseas to be paid for by U.S. taxpayers. All of these in only the first three days. Is this the kind of change we need? More grisly abortions? The proliferation of, quote, safe sex? 
pro-homosexuality in the military, the appalling redefinition of child pornography, the increased taxation of families. Is this the change America needs? I think not. At the deepest level, our national problems are spiritual, not economic, not medical, not educational. We need more than legislative or social change. There is a fine, and these are fine and good, but they don't go far enough. We need a spiritual change of heart. Only spiritual solutions can solve our deepest problems. This change may come, must come from within. A change from the inside out. A change of heart. So who can bring about such a spiritual change? Who can change our country's heart and soul? The answer lies with the church of Jesus Christ. The only hope for spiritual change in America is found with God's people. God's church is the agent of change in any culture. His instruments of transformation are transforming a nation. But like the world around us, the soul of the American church is dying. Our pulse for God is weakening. Our arteries of faith have become blocked. We need a spiritual bypass. If we are to have revival in America, it must begin in the church. America's crisis will be solved only when revival catches fire in the church and spreads across the world. As we progress in a post-Christian America, never before have we so desperately needed the church to be the church. The hope of America lies not in the White House, not with Wall Street, but with the church of Jesus Christ. I believe Lawson nails it on the head when he says the church must become the church that God intends for the church to be. Does the Lord have any reason to be concerned about the church? Does He have any right to tell the church what to be and to do? Absolutely. Listen, He is the head of the church. And He has every right to tell you and me what we ought to be and to do and how the church ought to function in our world. That's why it is so essential for us to hear what God says to the church And he does it in a most remarkable way. If you were here last Sunday, you know we studied a little bit of Revelation chapter 1, where the Apostle John is in exile. He is on the Isle of Patmos. And he was there because he had a testimony and was preaching the Word of God, was arrested by the Roman officials, and was sent as a a prisoner, I guess, and sentenced to breaking rocks on this barren island called Patmos. It must have been difficult for this 90-something-year-old man to endure the hardships there. But if you recall, he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard a voice behind me, and it was a sound of mighty waters. And I turned, John says, to see the voice. And what he saw was a picture, a revelation of the resurrected Christ. What an awesome experience that must have been. He described the Lord in that vision as having white hair symbolizing maturity and wisdom. He had so many other 
characteristics. He was robed like the high priest. He had many, many different kinds of descriptions for the Lord. And then he said, John, I want you to write. First of all, write you've seen. And so he wrote about the vision. Then write the things which are, that's chapters 2 and 3, the letters to the churches, the message that he has for the churches, and then the things that will be after. I think that's the... uh, chapter 5 and following all the way to the end of the book. But John saw and heard a message from the Lord Jesus Christ and in that message was to write a letter to seven churches. These were local congregations, but more than that, I think they, they may picture seven kinds of churches in every age. Churches that have as we're going to study in a moment, Ephesus lost its first love. Churches that are suffering, as we'll see next week in the church of Sperna. Churches that are married to the world and churches that are living in godless society and becoming godless themselves like Thyatira. Churches that are missionary and doing a great work of sharing the gospel around the world as Philadelphia was. And sadly, many churches like Laodicea. They were neither cold nor hot. The Lord says he will spew them out of his mouth. But I want us to study the church at Ephesus. If you have your Bibles, it's the first seven verses of chapter 2, the book of Revelation. I'm going to read the letter and then come back and talk a little bit about Ephesus and about the church's ministry. And then to hear the message that Jesus had for that church. So if you have your copy of Scripture, read along with me as I read Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church at Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil and who have, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars and you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Beautiful commendations. Verse four. Nevertheless, I have this against you. That you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works. Or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place. Unless you repent. But this you have. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. I think Jesus has a lot to say to the church. And as he begins these messages in chapter 2, there are things that we can learn that we need to know and put into practice in our own life. These seven churches are pictures, I think, of church history as the church ministered in every age following. But it also was a picture of maybe seven kinds of people in every church. As we study them, maybe you'll find your place 
also. I think this is essential to what Jesus may say to us about church revitalization, revival, growing again like God wants us to be and to do. Ephesus was a metropolitan city, very wealthy apparently. It was on the Castor River just a few miles from the ocean and it had a great big port. There were four major highways that came through Ephesus from all parts of the Roman Empire and so trade was very much a part of their economy. They had all kinds of things uh, that went through Ephesus. It was a free city, meaning that uh, they did not have a Roman garrison there to guard them. They were free to do whatever they wanted, basically. It was a, uh, a city that had tremendous pagan worship. One of the seven natural wonders of the ancient world was at Ephesus. Know what it was? The Temple of Diana. Huge, huge place of worship for Diana. More than two football fields long. It was over 200 yards long and almost as wide as two football fields. It was filled with all kinds of immorality. In the worship of Diana, they had prostitutes, both male and female, that would do anything you they wanted or you wanted to do with them as an act of worship. It was a godless place. It was also a free city, meaning that everyone who came there, whether they were criminals or perverts or whatever, were not punished by the law. So every kind of criminal you can imagine found a place of rest in the city of Ephesus. But in that city, God planted a church. If you want to read about it, Back in the end of chapter 18 and chapter 19 of the book of Acts, it was a tremendous church that, that, that God used in a remarkable kind of way. When Paul went there, you need to read the 19th chapter of Acts. All of Asia heard about the gospel through the ministry of this church. It was alive. It was dynamic. It was... It was remarkable the miracles that God did through those congregations. In fact, it's there that the scripture says even the, the aprons and the headband of Paul was taken by other people into other cities and, and laying those on illnesses. People would be healed just by touching the apron and the sweatbands of Paul. Can you imagine? Everywhere you went, The church was ministering and doing unbelievable things. In fact, I think the church at Colossae was started out of the ministry of Ephesus. Paul didn't go to Colossae, the one we're studying on Thursday mornings, but he was influential in what the church at Ephesus did. Oh, but you can't believe this. There was such a revival, such a lumber of people coming to know Christ as Savior that they began to put off their idolatrous worship. In fact, the people that made all the things that the worship of Diana included, little statues and books and all kinds of things, they began to lose trade. People would come. In fact, the Scripture says over 50 thousand pieces of silver worth of books were brought and they burned them because they were turning away from idolatrous worship and worshiping the true God. And the people who were leading in that industry became upset and they had a horrible riot in Ephesus. You need to read that chapter. Paul 
And the ministry there was so wonderful through the church that they were actually run out of town. That's the church that was so dynamic, so loving, so dedicated to the work of the Lord that Jesus addresses here. That same church, just a few generations later, Jesus has a word to. Before we look at the message itself, look at the person who addresses them. Did you see that in the first verse? The angel to the church of the angel at Ephesus, right? These things says, listen, he who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Who are the seven stars? You remember chapter 1 verse 19? God himself identifies the stars. They are the messengers of the church. The angels. Can you believe that? I mentioned last Sunday that pastors are not normally called angels. (laughs) But the Word of God calls them because the word angel means messenger, one who brings the message. He's holding those pastors in his hand. And then notice what he says. Who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. What are the seven lampstands? you remember? These are the seven churches that he's going to address in chapter 2 and chapter 3. So here is a beautiful picture. Jesus in the middle of the churches, holding the pastors in his hand, having a message that needs to be heard by the church. And so he delivers that message in the form of these letters. Listen to what he says. First of all, he begins almost all of the letters with a word of compliment or commendation. You see that in the first three verses here. I know what's going on. I can see the heart of every church. And in this church, he says, I know your works. That word Ergon is really the Greek word that means to labor, but it means to be energetic and to, and to put yourself to hard labor. Then later on he says, you're tall. Uh, that word is, is more intense. It has the idea of, of being really, really involved in what you're doing. The Lord Himself knew what had been going on in that church how they had labored, how they had toiled, how they had worked almost to exhaustion to do what God called them and equipped them to do. I know your works. Then he says, I know your patience. Oh, I love this word. I've tried to teach it to you. It's the word hupomone. You remember that? It literally means to stand under a load. It means to be firm. Steadfast, steady, secure. And the Lord says, I know not only what you have been doing, but how faithful you have been, how you have been standing up under the load, even under the pressure of the persecution that you're going through. And then not only do I know your works and your patience, I know your stand that you've taken. Did you see that? You have tested the doctrine of the false teachers. You have studied them. You know what they've said is right or wrong. And you have only followed the truth. What a tremendous testimony the Lord gives that church. I know who you are. I know what you've been involved in. I know. But tragically, that was in the past. 
That's what you used to be. That's what you were known for. That's what you were passionate about. And so he goes from compliments to criticism. I don't like verse 4. Look at it with me. Nevertheless, don't you hate that word? All of these positive things. But, nevertheless, there's something not right. You have lost your first love. The love that you had for sharing the gospel. The love that you had for being faithful and true. The love that you had for doing everything the church was called upon to do. You've lost that. The love that had stirred you back then is gone. The fervency with which you served has now grown cold. Nevertheless, I have something against you. What happens when love leaves? What happens when love leaves an employee at work? He who had been, she who had been excited about their position in the company, worked hard, did a good job. But when love leaves, that employee becomes pretty much unproductive, not worth much when love leaves. What about in school? When a student <clears throat> loves education, wants to learn everything, but something happens and they lose that passion for learning, what happens? Well, those of you who are retired teachers experienced that, didn't you? Some of you who are still in school may remember how you used to study, and now you become lackadaisical. Unfocused fails because you've lost the love. What happens in the home when love leaves? Does it ever happen? Yeah. When parents don't love their children and meet the needs that the child has, the child can become Difficult to deal with, harsh, rebellious. When the husband does not love the wife as the Lord loves the church, problems come. Separations, divorce, difficulties. You see, when love leaves, it leaves a vast vacuum that is difficult to fill. When love leaves the home, there's usually abandonment or abuse or both. What about in the church? What happens when love leaves? Well, we might function, but it's not the same, is it? Deeds go unmet. 
Ministries go unfulfilled. Classes dry up. The church loses its desire to be what God called us to be and to do. And Jesus says to this church that had at one time been a dynamic, their church profile every year would have been the leading church in the association. But now, listen to the word. Nevertheless, I have something against you. You have lost your first love. That's the criticism that Jesus gave that church. Then he makes some recommendations, some commands. You see that in verse 5. He says, remember... We did that this morning, didn't we, when we had our special music and testimony. We remembered. I remember. I remember going to church when we had to walk two or three blocks to get there because we didn't have a car. I remember somebody picking us up and taking us to church. I remember teachers that drilled us every Sunday night in church training or training union back then. Sword drill, scripture memory. I remember going to camp because somebody paid my way. And I went to children's camp and youth camp at Newton, East Texas Baptist Encampment. I remember those things. And what the Lord says to the church is, go back in your mind and think about how things used to be. The good things. Remember, the fellowship, the ministry, the love, the opportunity that God gives us, remember. Then he says, repent. Repent means to turn and change direction. It means to turn around. it has the idea of of confession. Lord, I'm not where I used to be and I want to be there. Lord, I ask you to forgive me and to break my heart so that the Word of God will not fall on death, definite ears, but I would be faithful to be the person that you want me to be. Lord, I repent. It means to do it privately. It could mean publicly. Lord, I'm so sorry for who I am now because I used to be in love with you and I've lost that. Remember. Repent. Return. Jesus says, do the first works. Go back to that place where you taught, are you sang, are you stayed in the nursery, or you went on mission trips, or you gave sacrificially so that God would be glorified in the ministry of the church as you worked outside the church. Return to that. I have a reason to believe that God speaks to me as he speaks to the church at Ephesus, how about you? 
Was there a time in your life when you were more involved in the things of God? You loved Him more. You served Him more. You were a part of what God was doing in and through your church. And if not now, then maybe the call to remember and repent and return are called for you too. He gives two consequences. Verse 5, the end of that, or else. I don't like that word either. Or else, if you don't do what I have commanded you to do, then there are going to be some consequences. The bad consequence is, did you see it? I will remove your lampstand. Oh, what's the lampstand? It's the church. If the church does not do what the commands of God says we're to do, then the church will be lost. How do you think Ephesus responded to the letter that they got from the Lord Jesus Christ Himself? Apparently they didn't repent and return. Because in 252 A.D., the Goths, came in to Ephesus and literally destroyed the city and the temple. And today I have read the harbor that once was teeming with life is filled with sand. And there are no ships there. There is no church of any denomination in the old city of Ephesus because they did not do what the Lord said to do. Would that be possible here? That God would remove the lampstand? That's the consequence of not doing what He says. The good consequence is, I will give you to eat of the tree of life. I have an idea that's a picture of what paradise was before sin came into it. Were you in Sunday school this morning? We studied that, did we not? In most of our lessons, the temptation and the fall of mankind in Genesis 3, God's going to restore that one day. And if we do what He says, we shall enjoy forever the fruits of our labor. We will be in that place of peace and love and joy and fellowship because He has promised it. What do you think about the message to Ephesus? Would it have any application to the church in 2023? What would Jesus say to you What would you say to us? What kind of church were we at one time? What kind of church are we today? What kind of church can we become? I don't have the answers. But I can tell you based upon the scripture that if God says something, He means it. And it very well could be that he's saying, 
to us. Answer this question. Have you lost your first love? My response and yours might be, Lord, what do I need to do? What do we need to do? If the Lord spoke to you like that, would you be willing to make that commitment? Would you be willing to say yes to the Lord regardless of what the assignment was? Would you say yes to Him? The Lord does not come now physically to walk down the aisles of this church. But let me suggest that you imagine the Lord coming through the back doors here and walking down the aisles and stopping at your pew and looking at your face eye to eye, face to face. And he asked this question. Jesus was asked this question a long time ago. You remember? Lord, what's the greatest commandment? And how did Jesus answer? The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Now what if the Lord came and stood at your pew and looked at your face and he asked that question, Do you love me with all your heart? your soul, your mind, and your strength. What would you have to say? Maybe the Lord is asking that question of us as we think about revitalization. Maybe that's the question that I need to ask and you need to ask of yourself. Lord, where do you see me? And what do I need to do to be obedient to you? Let him stand there at your door, your pew, your seat. And look into your face and ask that question. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Bow with me as we pray. This has been a hard study for me because I look back and I see a difference maybe in who I am today and who I used to be. Maybe it's difficult for you as well. But it's not intended from my perspective to be condemning, but to inviting. Inviting me to come back to a place of total commitment to the Lord and to you. If the Lord asks you to to remember and to repent to return what would that mean 
Well, maybe you need to come and make this altar your altar of recommitment today. Or maybe you need to renew your dedication to serving the Lord in whatever capacity He's given you the gifts to do. What does God sing to you? Before you sing, I want to ask you to listen carefully to what the Spirit of God may be saying to your heart. The words we're going to sing in a moment are softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling and Maybe He's doing that to you today, calling you, as He did the church at Ephesus, to get serious with the matter of living for Him. What would you do? Father, thank you for caring enough about the church at Ephesus and the church in Manny to speak a word of challenge, commendation, criticism where it needs to be, commands to take up our cross and follow you and then to look at the consequences. Lord, we don't want the lampstand to be removed. We believe this is your church and you still have a mission of ministry for us. If you're calling us to make commitments, I ask you to help us to be faithful. The preceding message was presented by First Baptist Church in Manny, Louisiana. For more information about a relationship with Jesus Christ or about the church, including contact information, go to the website www.fbcmany.org. Thank you for listening, and may God bless you.